The next episode of Ask Science Mike is the 200th episode. And gosh, what a journey it has been with you all so far. It's changed my life. And so we thought we'd drop a bonus episode this week, kind of looking back um, at some of, you know, the greatest hits, I guess, of the show so far, some of the most popular uh, questions and responses that have happened on this program. This is a bonus episode, uh, so we're not incrementing the counter. And then we're going to take a week off, uh, actually maybe two weeks off, uh, waiting for November 9th when we record uh, episode 200, and then the show will come out the following Monday. I'm really excited about that. It has sold out, but the good news is it's sold out several times. What I mean is we're regularly, you know, people are deciding they're not able to come and uh, getting their giving their tickets back or donating them. Um, and so we are adding new tickets pretty regularly, a few at a time. So you can go to MikeMcCark.com or AskScienceMike.com and click on events. And uh, you can see if there's uh, any room to get into the event. We'd love to see you at the live recording of episode 200. I've got a lot of exciting things happening that I can't wait to tell you about. I've got a lot of renewed enthusiasm towards Ask Science Mike right now. Uh, the patron community is really thriving and really growing. It's been fun to watch downloads increasing on Apple Podcasts again. Uh, we would gotten a pretty stable audience size for, I don't know, about a year there, which I really enjoyed. But we, we seem to be on some kind of rally. Gosh, I just want you to know that it's the highlight of my week every week talking with all of you. And I hope you'll enjoy this episode looking back at where we've been so far. Hey, Mike. I enjoy listening to you speak into the, the challenges and the conflicts that, that so many people go through. But I often wonder, what, what are the topics and the ideas or, or the elements of theology that you are currently struggling with? Uh, and then secondarily, you know, sometimes you will talk about uh, giving yourself just a few minutes to do a limited amount of research about any any given topic or question that somebody asks. And I would love to hear, you know, what's that quick process that you go through to seek and then find the answers and then compose that in a way that that's digestible and makes sense to the rest of us. All right. Thanks, man. Well, I always love the two for one questions. <laughs> People got to sneak in two questions and those, neither of those are quick questions. So hats off to you for getting that one by both Andrew and the patrons. Because uh, when I pick the show questions, uh, I always pick the easiest ones, <laughs> which meant double questions almost never made it because it was more work for me. Um, I had zero, no intended uh, guilt there. It's actually funny to me. So I will honestly answer both of those. You'll hate my first answer. I don't struggle with any theology whatsoever. <laughs> This is the, the thing about kind of the open-handed, nihilist, you know, ecclesiastical vapor approach to faith. What is there for me to struggle with? I hold it all so loosely. Uh, I enjoy the search. I enjoy studying scripture and reading about theology, even theologies I find preposterous, uh, because I like to see what role that theology has played the development of the church, and the development of human civilization. So there's nothing to struggle with. I doubt things all the time, but that's not a struggle. Doubt's how I have fun. <laughs> if you think less theologically and more stuff that's I think about a lot uh, right now, um, what's the balance between calling out harm and inviting people to see the world more broadly? Every time you put your foot down on a topic of injustice, some people walk away from the table. But if all you ever do is invite people, nothing gets done. What is the right balance on police brutality and racial injustice in social and economic contexts and climate change and all these pressing issues in our societies? How do I do the most good and the least harm I think about that more than anything else. I've been wrestling with uh, 
if human nature and collective cognitive action is compatible with democracy or indeed with civilization for the long term. I wrestle with that. That's a struggle for me. Uh, What could we do to make the internet more healthy than harmful for human civilization? I wrestle with that one a lot. And then something I think about all the time, I can't tell you about because it's top secret. It's a research for my next book that I'm not ready to talk about yet. So the thing I'm thinking about the most, you'll probably start hearing about 18 months from now. Isn't that a bummer? Now, the second question you sent in my process for researching questions. Uh, I actually wrote out the answer to this question last after watching myself answer the other questions on this episode. And here's the process. I read or listen to the question that has been submitted. And then off the top of my head, I make a bulleted list of how I'd answer the question if it was a live show, right? Just three to five, sometimes eight or ten bullets. There's usually only three major bullets, and then you have sub-bullets off of that, ideas supporting a point. Um, If that answer isn't enough, that means it's not going to be a quick research question, and that means it's got to go into the deep research pile, the stuff that sometimes I'll spend hours researching or occasionally on the show, a day and a half, maybe two days researching the answer to a question. Those are pretty rare. There were none of those for this episode. Uh, So once I've written out that little outline, I check any facts or figures for accuracy against a source. Um, So anytime I'm quoting a number or an equation or a scientific fact, I look that up. Or if I couldn't recall it exactly, I go and get the exact figure off of the internet. Then I look for supporting documentation. Research, studies, articles uh, that people can, A, validate where I got my information, and two, dig deeper. And uh, I'm really good at Google. So if the very first phrase that comes off my head doesn't give me what I want in the first three or five results... I amend it, and by usually the third search, I have the exact thing I was looking for. I'm really, uh, my Google Foo is strong, okay? And uh, then if I'm thinking about like book length stuff, I literally have a bookshelf in my office that's just full of uh, the kind of nonfiction books I love to read. And I use my spatial memory. They're organized by uh, topic on each shelf. And I'll just scan the spines to see like which book uh, did I read that told me a lot about that topic. And then I include that book in the show notes if I didn't get what I was looking for in Google. And then I'll usually try to find some studies that push back on what I said. And then I just hit record after I have all that stuff. So like for example, this entire uh, answer that I just read to you for both questions is only uh, seven bullet points. So because I've done so much stage work in my life, uh, and and anyone who's seen Ask Science Mike live knows I really do come up with these answers off the top of my head, I've studied storytelling enough to try to create an accessible, topical answer off the top of my head the first try. Greg takes out the pauses and the ums, Uh, But generally, what you're hearing is pretty close to what I said the first time off the top of my head. That's just sort of, I guess, my gift. You know, people say, well, why do you do this? You're not a scientist. You're not a pastor. You're not an expert. All those things are true. But I am a lifelong communicator and educator. And uh, I do think I'm, I'm actually gifted at it. And I work really hard at it. So I think the intersection of those things, as long as I stick to communicating and educating people on things I've done the work to study, then I'm helping. If I position myself as the actual expert, or if I try to pass off my nasal gazing as you know credible academic information, then I would go off the rails. So I'm really careful to tell you when I've ventured off into my opinion and how I see the world. And uh, when I speak about science or history or theology, I do my very best to be faithful 
to the good work of the people who came up with that stuff in the first place? Uh, Really good questions. Thank you. Okay, our next question is also a patron question, and it's, it's a great one. Mike, I am new to science, and I'm not sure if I am a confused atheist or a confused Christian. Okay, let me stop you right there. You've come to the right place. <laughs> this is the perfect podcast for you. Uh, I do know that I am a closet nonconformist in an evangelical community and family. My question is, why do humans exist? If you accept a version of creationism, God created humans. If he knows all things, he would have known how terrible we would be that we would turn our backs on God, and basically he would have to mass murder us several times to thin the herd. Why would he create us just to watch us suffer? If God had nothing to do with the creation of humans, and we are in fact a cosmic accident of good fortune, then why would anyone, including you, believe in that God? It seems to me that the God that had the power to create matter from nothing would have had enough power to direct its course. Therefore, we would be intentional creations, and we are back to the first point in why let us exist to begin with. I feel I am stuck between choosing a God that is a narcissistic jerk or no God at all. Well, Boy, I think a lot of people feel that way today. Uh, so you are not alone there. You're wrestling with the problem of evil. You're wrestling with the idea of theism versus atheism as a result of that dilemma. And boy, a lot of people have been there. Here is why you are wrestling with those things. You've grown as a person. So what once got you through the day doesn't anymore. This is a good thing. Your understanding of the world is growing. And so the metaphors that once helped you navigate reality don't fit anymore. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that the way you once believed in God was simplistic or inappropriate. What I'm saying is it no longer fits where you are. So let's celebrate that. When I had the same (laughs) discussion with Rob Bell that you're having now, when I said, I don't believe any of this stuff for very similar reasons, he said, you're here. Let's celebrate that. Well, you're here. You asked the question, let's celebrate that. Now, I love evangelicalism. I love who it made me. I love the personal God it presents. I even love the focus on doing the work of Christ to remake the world. But some of the theist associations with evangelicalism and indeed with the broader church, uh, they raise issues that are are hard to answer. And uh, when I see theologians try to do so, Uh, it's often somewhat appalling. (laughs) So I'm going to tell you my take, which may or may not help you along. This is one of many possible views. I think when we wrestle with this very involved or very distant or non-existent God, we make God too much like us. We're viewing God anthropomorphically. Promorphically, anthropomorphically. If you've listened to the show, you know me and pronunciation aren't friends. You're, you're making God a, a person with like awareness and intent, agency, emotions, a rational consideration of cause and effect. That's a very reasonable thing to do because you're human. If we put a face on something, we imagine it has a perspective like our own that's the root of empathy. We view animal behavior through a human lens. Why wouldn't we view the divine as though it were a mirror? But where I am today, theologically, I'm actually much more with Spong or Spinoza, even Einstein. I don't understand God to be a being, but to be being itself. I love the phrase, the ground of being, 
were the source of all. Such a God is the animating isness of everything. So every particle interaction, every sunrise, every moment of beauty emanates from God, as does every death and every lung cancer. Isn't that a a fascinating, troubling view of God? Now, what's interesting about me is uh, that is both true and a little bit of bullshit because I absolutely experience a more personal God through contemplative mysticism. My time in presence with God in meditation very often denotes a personal relationship, a God that loves me, a God whom I love. How do I resolve that? Oh, that's easy. I don't. I don't use theology, at least cataphatic, rational theology, to analyze and box in the divine. Is it possible that what I experience as God is simply my brain responding to reality in a particular way? Sure it is. Totally possible, even likely. And it doesn't bother me a bit. It doesn't diminish the miracle or the beauty. Is it more likely that uh, Jesus was crucified and stayed in the ground or that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, it is way more likely that Jesus stayed in the ground or that his body was removed from the tomb. But mystically, by loving God, I encounter a risen Christ. So I sit with that, but I don't master that. And I understand this is a very strange place to be. Most people are deeply uncomfortable with it because we're addicted to certainty. And frankly, since the Enlightenment, we have all lived and camped out in our left brain and told the holistic view of reality our right hemisphere offers to hit the road, Jack, or Jill, or gender nonconforming person. I would encourage you to read a book like uh, Why Christianity Must Change or Die by John Shelby Spong. Maybe check out Finding God in the Waves by that guy, Mike McCarg. Um, but understand there are more options than the evangelical God and atheism. But hey, if atheism gets you to a life of beauty and peace and helping others, well, atheism's just fine. If the practice of faith matters to you, if the presence of God in your life is important, but you just can't go along with evangelical theology, hey, that's okay. What matters where you'll find the gospel is in doing the work to help heal the world. In being a good neighbor, yes, but also in loving God. But as we see God in the Bible, There were so many ways of understanding God across the biblical narrative. Do you think Jesus' 12 disciples all understood him the same way or viewed God in the same way? I believe deeply that we are given whatever word, image, relationship to the divine we must have in order to serve the world if we're open to it. And they all point to the same great and beautiful mystery, that ground of being, and that source of all. Hey, Science Mike. Uh, My question today regards laboratory black holes. Um, I saw something in passing while I was in an airport on CNN about a black hole that has been successfully built in a laboratory. Um, Then I googled black holes in a laboratory and kind of found, uh, what I found was articles referencing black holes in a laboratory, quantum entanglement, Hawking radiation, um, all sorts of great stuff, uh, but not like the actual mechanism by which these black holes exist in a lab and don't swallow up our existence on Earth because 
That's my primitive understanding of a black hole. So please, fix it. Help me understand better what's going on here. Thanks, Science Mike. Love you. Well, first, thank you so much for a science question. Hooray! (laughs) The show has turned into basically Dear Abby, uh, only Dear Science Mike. And I, I love that, and I'll keep doing that. But I really do love talking about scientific concepts. And that was the original vision for the show, was to, to explore science and faith. Uh, and it seems like the science and faith in life has become life, 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 some science, and a bit of faith, right? <laughs> Which is fine. You guys run the show. And I also want to thank my patrons for picking this question, for giving me a science question. I'm so excited. Your understanding of black holes is not primitive because you have any understanding of black holes whatsoever. <laughs> So uh, let's talk a little bit for get everyone else caught up on what a black hole is in the first place. Albert Einstein had this idea about gravity and space-time. Einstein thought and put forth the math to demonstrate that space and time were a single indivisible fabric. And Einstein's theory of relativity tells us that gravity actually warps or bends space-time, okay? So what a black hole is, is when you get mass that's so compressed, so tightly compressed, its gravitational well becomes so steep that nothing can escape from it, including light. So if you could imagine for a second, if you were holding a towel out in front of you and you placed a, a golf ball on that towel, it would create a little divot, that's what a planet does to space-time. And if you created, if you know, set a, a bowling ball on the towel, you would really struggle to hold the towel up at all. And uh, that would be uh, more like what a star does to space-time because stars are much more massive than planets. But if you were to set, oh, I don't know, a bowling ball that weighed as much as a car on that towel, you couldn't possibly hold it up. And if you were strong enough, the towel would rip. So if we imagine a towel that cannot be ripped, you kind of have space-time. And so you you would try to hold the towel up, but it would pull your hands together, right? And you'd have two ends of the towel touching, and then this towel bubble underneath holding that bowling ball that weighed as much as a car, and that would be a black hole, right? That's an event horizon. That's the area around a black hole that light and matter cannot escape. Now, there's a weird thing about black holes. They, they make some challenging assumptions about physics that theoretical physicists don't like. For one, the entropy in a black hole is understood to be a function of the area of its surface and not its volume. And uh, that runs afoul of physics. That's probably too deep for us to go into without making this like a like a twenty minute or thirty minute answer. Uh, but just just trust me on that. Entropy in black holes is an issue. So Stephen Hawking came up with something called Hawking radiation. And basically, there's this idea in physics that in the vacuum of space, little virtual particles appear at random, and every particle is an antiparticle, and they're attracted to each other, and they annihilate. And it doesn't matter, right? You can create mass in the universe as long as it's annihilated by an equal anti-bit of mass uh, through antimatter. And the idea with Hawking radiation is that if you have uh, virtual particles that pop into existence on either side of an event horizon, and one of the particles gets sucked into the black hole or stays inside the event horizon, the other escapes and therefore is not annihilated, that energy has to come from somewhere because of the laws of physics. And so the black hole just lost a little tiny bit of mass energy. So the idea here is actually, believe it or not, that even though light can't escape a black hole directly, black holes do evaporate through Hawking radiation. Now, large black holes are generally eating matter all the time. They're sucking down clouds of dust and other stars, even colliding with other black holes. And so they're eating much faster than they're evaporating. In fact, if we imagine the large black hole suddenly stopped getting any supply of matter, 
it would take much longer than the age of the entire universe for a black hole of any significant mass to evaporate via Hawking radiation. Very slow process. But the less mass a black hole has, the faster it evaporates. So a very small, like a microscopic black hole, the kind of thing we could feasibly create if we had more advanced technology on the Earth in something like a a very much more powerful version of the Large Hadron Collider, well, a microscopic black hole would evaporate almost instantly, long before it could consume any additional matter to grow. And its event horizon would be so tiny, it would be very unlikely that anything would cross it anyway. But the experiment in reference did not create a proper black hole with an event horizon. Instead, it produced a sonic black hole, a condition in physics in which sound should not have been able to cross the event horizon of this, quote, black hole, unquote, that was actually made out of supercooled helium. It was, it was cooled very near absolute zero and then rapidly churned. And based on our understanding of fluid dynamics, sound shouldn't have been able to escape that simulated black hole using sound instead of light. And uh, what this experiment found was that uh, there actually was a leakage of information from that black hole as roughly predicted by Hawking's theory. Right? Hawking's theory. That's really interesting and intriguing, but a couple points. They didn't create a black hole in a lab. Two, although it appears, according to the comments of many physicists, the experiment was was beautiful and elegant and interesting, uh, it may not really tell us anything at all. It's super intriguing, but it may or may not inform theoretical physics as the data from the experiment is examined more deeply. So really fascinating stuff. But don't worry, our planet's not getting consumed by a laboratory-created black hole anytime soon. Hi, Science Mike. My name is Alana, and I have a question about something that has bothered me my whole life. For most of my life, I have remained single despite a desire to be in a romantic relationship. I was told by friends time and time again that the cause might be my intimidation factor. According to close friends, I am generally an intimidating person. Some have even told me that they were scared of me the first time that we met. Upon further discussion, the conversation inevitably works its way to three characteristics of mine that, in combination, apparently make me intimidating. Those three things are my high level of intelligence, my self-confidence, and my bold, outspoken nature. We always end up at the conclusion that men are simply intimidated by me, and that is why they are not interested. I decided long ago that just because men in general couldn't seem to handle me, I wasn't going to change. Now, I am in a very loving and strong relationship with a wonderful man that appreciates all of me, most importantly, those three characteristics previously discussed. However, a few days ago, I was on social media when I came across an article from Psychology Today describing a study from the Warsaw School of Economics, which made my blood boil. Here it is again. Men are intimidated by intelligence. To make matters even worse, the article states that not only is there a clear point at which men stop valuing a woman's increasing intelligence, but women's level of attractiveness actually decreases as their perceived intelligence increases. Science Mike, can you please speak to this issue and why it is that generally men don't value intelligent women? Thanks for all your hard work. I look forward to hearing your answer. Well, it's a great question. It's a little depressing, but it's a great question. And uh, I went and looked up uh, the study in question and the Psychology Today article uh, that you referenced. By the way, thanks for really uh, clear references that made it easy for me to research. That's very helpful. And yeah, there, there's no methodological flaws I could find in the research it appears to have done reasonably well in peer review. Well, let's all catch up with what we're talking about, huh? Uh, they did a study with men and women, 
uh, where they would go on on dates, speed dates, really, and then they would rate their uh, partner's tr- physical traits and and uh, mental traits. So they would say, you know, how attractive on a scale of one to ten they thought someone was, and they would find uh, how uh, attractive they or how intelligent they believed they were, and then how likely they were to go on a date with them again. And what we found with both sexes, men and women, by the way, for my friends who don't cleanly identify on a gender binary, uh, I would like to apologize if, if discussing this research is in any way alienating to you. This, this study did not uh, have the methodological capability to look beyond sort of cis-heteronormative assumptions. But in that framework of men and women as a binary, uh, who are, by the way, uh, they, they tested heterosexuals in this research. Um, what we saw was both sexes were more attracted to people they found more attractive and therefore more likely to go out with them again, right? So there was no no diminishing returns on attractiveness. You had the best chance at going out with a woman again if you were a 10 out of 10 attractive male, and the same was true for females. What they found was that uh, to a point, increased intelligence could influence women to be more likely to uh, say they wanted to go out with a man again. So if a man was a little less attractive but more intelligent, it increased his probability, although there was a much stronger correlation between physical attractiveness and a desire to see someone again than intelligence. So far more important to be good-looking than smart with the women in the study. Uh, Now, when it came to men, the same was true. They loved the attractiveness of women, but they found that, on average, anything past a 7 out of 10 intelligence actually decreased the chance that men would want to see a woman again. So uh, if the woman was a little bit more attractive, a man might take an 8 out of 10 in intelligence. Uh, And if she was a little less... attractive, then she actually needed to be a little less intelligent to increase her chances of going out again. Man, what is going on here? That is crazy. Now, first, what have we learned? Both men and women are uh, very likely to weigh physical attractiveness as extremely important in the early stages of relationship building where, at least according to this study, pretty superficial. Um, But women have uh, appreciate intelligence as it increases, and men actually start to find high intelligence as unattractive and and reducing the chance of going out with someone again. I don't have a research-based answer for you that there's not a lot of other uh, studies I could find that would help me you know, give you a better answer, uh, which I would call like purely scientific or from the social sciences. I would say that when I look at that uh, through feminist scholarship, uh, it makes a lot of sense, actually, that men don't value intelligent women. The same way we know that, that many men report they're uncomfortable if a woman that they're in a relationship with makes more money than they do or is more successful than they are, and that is the kind of toxic depiction of masculinity that's offered by our patriarchal social structures and norms. We train men from a very young age that they have to be what? The smartest, the biggest, the strongest, the most successful they can be in order to provide for women. And feminism has made more strides, I believe, in shaping the imagination of women than it has the imaginations of men. I'll tell you, if uh, my wife Jenny made more money than I do, or she was more successful than I am, I would be elated, positively elated. And I've always enjoyed the company of intelligent people, but especially intelligent women uh, because they haven't been socialized to spar in the same way. So I've actually found you can have uh, better conversations often 
with very smart women than very smart men. Um, but I also grew up as a nerd uh, who was called a sissy a lot, right? So I've always, I think I, I, I comfortably identify as male. I think I have a lot of masculine qualities, uh, but I'm, I'm very comfortable with what we might ascribe as a as a, an idea of femininity as well. I don't have any particular pressure to conform in many ways to male social norms, precisely because I've so frequently experienced rejection from men in my life in social contexts. Maybe that needs to happen to more men. I don't know. I, I do know we need to do a better job when we talk to young boys about what it means to appreciate women as equals, as fully human, and not as objects, right? You don't want an object you own to be superior to you. (laughs) But you do want a partner in life to be strong and weak, however their life made them to be. Again, I don't have research to back it up, but my my take on that data definitely is men have been trained to see women primarily as something to acquire and to control and to own and uh, not as equal partners in life. Okay, so Josh on Patreon says, you've talked a lot about how when speaking with someone you have differences with, it's best to try to avoid activating their amygdala. My question is, how can you avoid this in yourself? I sense at times that my defenses get up and I lose the ability to speak rationally and with clarity. Uh, Well, first of all, I don't always do that successfully. I do get angry, uh, sometimes on Twitter. (laughs) Very often... Uh, uh, because of something our president-elect did. Um, Also, frankly, I found that my ability to um, respond instead of react, my ability to be calm and diffuse anger, has diminished since I fell off a motorcycle and had a closed head injury. Uh, So a lot of some things about me have subtly changed since that accident. And my temper and my patience is one of them. That said... The techniques I used then and I'm using now to try to be a patient person who is not unnecessarily anger is a combination of mindfulness, an ongoing awareness, and attention and focus on my thoughts and feelings and physical sensations. And then I use something called biofeedback to counteract my emotions when needed. So if I start to get angry, when you get angry, you get hot, you get tense, you, uh, your breathing uh, picks up, so I intentionally breathe slowly, I intentionally relax, and uh, I listen to my thoughts. When my thoughts get revved up and seem angrier, I say, whoa, let's examine that for a moment. just kind of brings me back down. But on that note, I've seen people use what I talk about in keeping the amygdala unaroused in yourself and in others in a conversation of differences of opinion, and they use that insight to dismiss all anger as invalid or divisive, and that's not where I'm going. Anger is not inherently bad, and expressing anger sometimes is part of healthy human behavior. Remember, if you're a Christian, Jesus did get angry. Jesus was sometimes sarcastic and snarky in the Bible. So anger has been scientifically demonstrated, in fact, to have a defensive benefit against oppressors or attackers. It's just not very useful for persuasion. If you're having a discussion with someone, it's best to avoid the amygdala. But if someone is actively hurting you or ignoring the way you are being hurt, anger can get their attention. And it is not healthy to repress anger. It's only healthy to process and disperse anger, okay? So um, how I do that is mindfulness biofeedback and trying to understand the other person's perspective, but I understand that requires me 
basically some privilege. Uh, it's very difficult to have that same dynamic with someone who's actively oppressing or harming you. And I take my relative position of gender and racial and economic privilege to give me the platform to listen patiently to ideas that would be personal to someone else. Even if I find them offensive, I try to think about how I might have shared ideas similar at some point. I try to think of the motivations and and encounters that may have led to the belief in this person and allow them to express it, honor their right to feel as they feel, but then provide uh, stories and perspectives and information that may help them see the world through other people's eyes. Aaron on Patreon asked maybe the nerdiest question this week. I just read A Brief History of Time and learned Stephen Hawking is now trying to disprove the Big Bang. I think it was over my head, so maybe I read wrong. I love when theologians like Rob Bell and Richard Rohr talk about the singularity and how much it sounds like God. Do you think Hawking is right and there was no Big Bang? If so, does that change any of your views on God and faith? First of all, uh, I know and follow Rob and Richard. I did not know that they talked about the singularity, uh, so I'm going to have to hear their talks about that and see if they're as good as my talks on the singularity. <laughs> I mean, I wish I was kidding, but I'm really impressed with my singularity theology. Uh, so I would love to hear what Rob and Richard have to say as well. Um, so Big Bang Stephen Hawking. Let's be really careful with our language. The Big Bang theory of cosmology is not one idea, but a collection of ideas that describe how our universe came to be as it is today. And uh, Stephen Hawking is not trying to refute the entirety of the Big Bang theory, but instead to address shortcomings in the model. So Hawking's more recent work doesn't resist or correct cosmic inflation, the age of the universe as we know it today, or even when and how matter and stars and galaxies and planets and all that stuff form. Hawking's revised theories hold on to all those things, including cosmic inflation, which is a big deal. What Hawking is wrestling with is the singularity. And that's a great thing because singularity is what physicists say when they mean no one has a clue. Yeah, what the F is this, right? So, um, and if the universe began with a singularity, the universe as we know it isn't a universe at all because it's not all that exists. Because if the laws of physics just stop at singularity or change radically in a way that we can't project from this position, uh, then the universe has to have some external mechanism in order to begin, something that happens pre-singularity to cause cosmic inflation. And uh, Hawking doesn't like that. So Hawking's follow-up work proposes that space-time is finite but boundless. Now, this is a big deal. What does finite but boundless mean? It means it's uh, something limited in volume but that has no edges. Think about the Earth. The Earth's surface is finite. There's not an infinite amount of land and sea on planet Earth. But there are no edges. You can go east and west as long as you want and never hit the end of the Earth, although you will eventually get back to where you started. Uh, If we were to think kind of temporally, what Stephen's talking about, is if you were to head north toward the North Pole, you can walk to the North Pole and just keep walking. You can walk past the North Pole, at which point you are going south, but you never hit an edge. And so Hawking's kind of attempt, which has not been verified, but is incredibly clever, is a multi-dimensional model of a finite, boundless space-time where um, instead of the universe emerging from an infinitely dense point, our universe emerges from a perfectly typical point of space-time. That sounds complex. I get it. It's a big deal. (laughs) Because if that's the case, there is no singularity. The laws of physics stay the laws of physics. Then how do you explain cosmic inflation and the universe as we see it? Well, it's proposing that somehow in physics, thanks to the behavior of a 
finite, boundless space-time, uh, at some point, the universe basically borrowed energy from gravity to make matter. And in doing so, gravity was dramatically weakened and you had cosmic inflation, uh, as well as now an arrangement of matter. And this is an attempt not to refute the Big Bang, but to take the singularity out of the Big Bang theory and replace it with a, a better or more complete understanding of physics that can describe everything we know about the universe and possibly in the process help unify gravity in the quantum realm and relativity with the standard model of physics. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you just have to do a lot of reading. Uh, I've heard it said once, that if you can't explain a theory to a six-year-old, you don't really understand it. And by that metric, I do not understand <laughs> Stephen Hawking's uh, revised theories of Big Bang cosmology. Occasionally, I let uh, good friends get a question on the show. They have to submit them just like you do, but when I see them, I'll pull them out of the queue, and I'll be honest, this is one of those times where somebody gets unfair access to skip to the front of the line. This question is from Madison, and she's my oldest daughter, <laughs> so <laughs> you're about to get a sneak peek into my home life with this question. And the question is, how do I listen to God? I've heard from God so many times in my life. When I was seven, I heard God telling me I needed to accept Jesus just as clearly as I'd heard someone talking to me. Only this voice came from somewhere inside of me, but it didn't seem to be me. It seemed to be someone else. And I heard that voice as God. Other times in my life, I've heard God tell me to pray for people, even ask people if I could pray with them, and I've done that. I once uh, sat in church and heard God telling me I should go to Guatemala to meet people there, and I did. Uh, as I got older, I started to wonder if all those times I'd heard from God were just things that were happening in my own head. And for a while, I believed that, that there was no God at all. And everything that I thought was God was just my brain. Sometime later, I heard from God again, and it confused me because I didn't think that God was real at all. And this time, I heard from God more powerfully than I'd ever heard from God before. And as I've grown older, I've realized that there's a problem of thinking about God in this way, that God is somewhere else. And sometimes we listen and hear, and other times we don't. I've grown to understand that God is everywhere, all the time. It's less about listening to God and more about becoming aware of God's presence all the time. I don't try to hear God tell me something specific as much anymore or listen to God speak in words but instead become aware of the way that God is around me all the time, the way that God is making life possible and the universe possible. So here's how I listen to God today. One, I pray every day. I talk to God every day, and in my time of prayer, I spend some time in silent contemplation, silent listening, silent awareness uh, that I didn't bring myself into the world, but instead God brought me into the world, that I did not do anything to create the air that I breathe, and instead that air is just a gift, that every moment I am sustained by something else. And I call that God. When we talk to God, that's called prayer, but it's not the only way that we can pray. There are other forms of prayer we call meditation that involve mostly quiet and stillness and a growing awareness that God is everywhere. I also read the Bible. Now, I stopped doing that for a while because it confused me. But these days, I read the scriptures again as the stories of people who, like me, have wondered what God's like and what God wants with the world. And in those stories, I find a reflection of myself. I find people who want to serve God but are often confused about how to do so. 
Of course, another way I listen to God is by going to church and being around people who love me and love God. Now, church can be difficult. I've learned that different churches are comfortable with different ideas and that not every church is for every person. And the reason we have so many churches and so many ways of approaching God is so that everyone can find some group of people who will both love them as they are and invite them to become who they can be. By doing that, what we hear God. I hear God when I listen to Pastor Betsy preach uh, from our pulpit at church, and I hear God in the love and encouragement that all these people share for each other when they pray for each other, when they show up to the hospital to care for one another. God speaks in that time. Of course, I also find God in science. When I study how things work, I see the ways that God moves in the world just as clearly as I do at church or in the scripture. I find God in nature. When I walk through the woods, I become aware of the complexity and intricacy of life on this planet, and I see myself as part of a larger drama unfolding all around me all the time in a way I can't hear sitting in my house or in the middle of a city. And yet sometimes in crowded cities, I also find God on subways or airplanes when I see people moving through their lives and doing their best to do good. To be honest, most of all, I find God here at home with your mom and with you and Macy. Because when I'm with you, I feel a love so powerful that I cannot explain it. I don't have any words to explain how much I love you and I love my family. And I'm really good with words. And in those moments, when I sit with you and your sister and hold your hand, when I walk across a parking lot, or we say our prayers, I hear God most powerfully that this is why there is a world. That this is why we are here to express love and caring and compassion in a universe that is otherwise fairly cold. We are in our own way a light, a reflection of God's creative spark. So I do most of my listening to God by loving my family. I'm so proud of you. Thank you for sending a question. Oh, 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 oh